1: Hello and welcome to The Bookshelf here on ABC Radio National or on your podcast device of choice. This is where every week we talk new fiction and hopefully give you ideas about what to read next. I'm Kate Evans, but Cassie McCullough, it's been a whole week, so how are you?
2: Kate Evans, I am very well, thank you. Although we did pass the equinox this week, which is always a little bittersweet for me. It means that summer's on the run, but guess there's more time for reading. (laughs) More time for reading. I mean, do you have time to read much
1: apart from all these weekly set texts for this show?
2: Yeah, look, I I read a novel for this program and then I'm often reading other books for the other program I do on ABC Sydney Mornings. Um, Read some fantastic books just lately. One of them, Philippa McGuinness's book called Skin Deep, Also Julianne Schultz's recent book, The Idea of Australia, which really got me thinking. Some brilliant books around. I've got both of those uh, on my to-be-read pile because I sometimes like,
1: as a bit of antidote to fiction, to read some non-fiction. And so I recently read the... um, historical work, Rose by Suzanne Faulkner, which is about Rose de Freshenay, who was a French woman who circumnavigated the world just after the um, Napoleonic Wars. I found that one fascinating.
2: Well, let's turn to the books that we're going to be discussing. In a moment, you and I will look at this brand new book, called Metronome by a young man called Tom Watson. I'm excited to know what you think about that one. But we're also talking
1: Australian writer Tony Jordan's new book, Dinner with the Schnabels, as well as the latest from Mexican writer Fernanda Melchor, Paradise. But why don't we start with that one that takes us, well, onto a strange island with an extraordinary clock. Tom Watson is an English writer whose short stories have won many awards. And now he's written his first novel, Metronome, which takes us to a bleak, distant landscape, a stone hut and two people
2: living alone.
1: Now, wherever they are, they've been there for 12 years, Cassie.
2: Yes, and and maybe it's best to start with the way this novel begins. The character, Ina, is in the kitchen of this small croft and she's doing washing up and the back doors open and she can see through them a headland so the water is visible. It's a very domestic scene. And then her partner, Whitney, whispers to her, come quickly. Through the back door, she can see that coming down the garden path is a sheep. Now, it's her response that tells us This novel is not what it seems. This is not a happy domestic scene at all because the first thing that Ina reaches for is a spear gun. After saying, what the Jesus is that? (laughs) So why does she want a spear gun upon seeing a sheep? Well, this is where the central mystery of the novel begins. The sheep has wandered in from somewhere but because this is an island and we think it's rather small, Whitney, Irina's partner, believes that it, it's arrived via the water. And you don't see that many swimming sheep, do you? <laughs> Certainly not. So this is the mystery that's planted. And as we, the reader, try to unpick what and where exactly we are, more and more clues are given. This is one of the great strengths of the book. We are satisfied at every moment just about when we want to know something we are offered crumbs and like hansel and gretel we follow them and we are taken to where Watson wants us to go.
1: It's a clever piece of world building because, as you say, it begins so domestically. It begins in the house. And as we look out from there, we have to make sense not just of a house and a garden and a small island. From it, he helps build up an entire slightly dystopian world. I mean, by the third page, we learn that they're waiting for the warden. To arrive. Now
2: that's a very particular word, isn't it? Mm. Turns out they have been exiled to this place, this island croft, the house is called Long Sky Croft for some crime that has been committed 12 years prior. The warden is this invisible presence, but has been contactable via a radio. But. It's been a while since the warden has responded to messages.
1: And it's been a while since they had supplies dropped at the um, island as well. So they're living a sort of self-sufficient life. You get a sense that this is a pretty bleak landscape as well. Mm. Uh, It's a tough life that they're living. And about once a year, a shipwreck has happened
2: yeah, and... these boats have been washing up. There's a, a tugboat, a freighter, a pleasure craft of of some type, empty, and they pick over these boats for everything they can salvage. Um, you know, they've managed to get. Urgent supplies, sometimes wood, they might chop up a boat for the wood. Or if they're really lucky, there might be a book or a jigsaw puzzle or even food. These become precious resources with which they've been able to sustain their life on this island once the supplies stopped arriving. And so
1: one of the things that I think you're then forced to do as a reader is to wonder why they don't try to fix up the boats or why they don't try to get somewhere else or why they don't explore further afield. And that is answered because there's something inside the croft that tethers them there. It's a clock. Now, I spoke to Tom Watson and asked him to tell us about this thing in the Croft, what it is and what it does.
0: Within the Croft, there is a pill clock. The place where they have been exiled to, they're led to believe that they need to be taking pills every eight hours in order to survive. And this is largely because of um, the presence of toxins in the air. So they need to take these pills and they... Uh, receive them from from this contraption called a pill clock. They required to use their thumbprints on, on a sensor and it reads their thumbprints and then it releases a pill. And it took me a while to come up with this pill clock. But I think what what essentially what I wanted was to have the two of them sort of tied to this location and tied to each other. One of them can't go to one end of the island and and have a couple of days away, there is, no, there is no sense of release. There is no way that they can have control of their own daily routine. They've got to be there at 6 in the morning, at lunchtime around 2pm, and then again at night at 10pm. So that's when their, their pills are released. And that really sets their, their every day is, is the same. It's bound by those same routines.
1: I wasn't sure whether I believed that pill clock at first. I wasn't sure whether they really did need to take this pill Mm -hmm. every
2: eight hours. So the logic is that this island, this place they've been exiled to, is I'm assuming north in the Arctic Circle. There's been some melting of the ice, which means that spores have been coming from... Tundra that had been beneath the ice sheet for millennia have come up, and that's what's caused the air to be toxic to human beings who aren't accustomed to it. You know, presumably down south, that wasn't a problem, but because they're here, they need to take these pills every eight hours and pretty quickly around that eight hour time, otherwise, they start to feel intense symptoms. So, yeah, this is the device that keeps them tethered to the croft. The other thing that keeps them tethered there is Whitney's absolute belief that they are being watched, their behaviour is being assessed and whatever they do will influence whether they're allowed to leave this place at the end of their 12-year sentence.
1: Yes, he believes in the system, even though it's done something harsh to them in that they've been exiled for 12 years. He seems to believe in rehabilitation, he believes that they'll be taken off and everything will be okay, whereas Ina isn't so certain. I mean, she's the one who tests the clock. She waits, sees what happens if she waits another five minutes and then she gets horribly sick and she has to rush and and have the pill. We've got, on the one hand, this extraordinary sort of world building of this dystopia, but it's also about two people Mm. trying to make, and it's It's terribly claustrophobic.
2: Yes, it's, it's a brilliant portrayal of a long, old relationship full of experiences and also ancient enmities which come to the surface. Back to the sheep. He thinks the sheep is a test from the warden. Uh, It's been sent perhaps as a reward, he thinks, for enduring so many hardships as they have over these years. But Ina begins to think maybe that's not the case and she's much more cynical about their situation. And so after the the sheep sort of settled in and living happily with them and she decides she she should trim its fleece, she goes over to it and she puts out a hand and she realises it's half tame doesn't shrink from her touch, which means it's been in contact with other people. And if it hasn't come from the water, well, where has it come from? And then as she pulls the fleece back, she finds clues, including a pine needle, which is just loosely in the fleece, which couldn't, would have easily been washed away, sitting in the fleece. So where are the pine trees? There are none that they can see. So has it come from land?
1: And if it has come from the land, if this island isn't as they think it is, did Whitney already know? How much do they trust each other? What's going on? So even though they only have each other, there's all sorts of tensions, both in their possible futures and in looking back and dealing with or not dealing with their past, which is a big part of the novel and we Mm. cannot talk about it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. just that whole tension. Well,
2: the one thing we can say, I do like the chapter that, because it alternates between the present and the past, and I did like the one that started like this. The Summer They Met... She had been playing in a minimalist instrumental ensemble. Cello, drums, her on the piano. (laughs) (laughs) They're both artists. She's a musician and he's a visual artist. Hilarious. Well, and he turns to his visual
1: art on the island. I mean, he's making sculptures. He seems to be happy to do that. Whereas, the I mean, she doesn't have a piano, so her old form of music is lost to her. But there are sort of rhythms and music and pulses throughout this Yeah, novel. she
2: plays an invisible keyboard, actually. Her fingers move over keys that aren't there. And she remembers her pieces of music that way.
1: Yes, but then there's also this sort of chorus, this sound mm. which connects, well, there's the pulse of the clock, and then there's this phrase, yantan tethera, Metherer pip.
2: Yeah, and it's some little mnemonic that I think her grandmother had passed on to her. Did you get to the bottom of what it was? It's actually a, um, it's a traditional way of counting sheep. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, she references that, I see.
1: So it's a counting form. There's variations of it all over the UK and probably into Scandinavia and places like that where people are having to keep track of them. And it gets used more and more as the novel goes on and as we're thinking about what the sheep might mean, but also the rhythm of time and change, and it's all built in. So I was quite, I was fascinated by the way mm-hmm. that he used these sort of rhythmic device throughout the novel. Yeah, of course,
2: the first thing I thought when the sheep arrived was, oh yeah, it's the Lamb of God, you know. <laughs> Is it Christ has arrived in some way? <laughs> I don't know. What I really did like, besides the way the story unfolds rather carefully, but thrillingly. I had a couple of birthday parties over the weekend and at both of them, I was thinking about this book. <laughs> I mean, I had a great time. No offence to anyone whose birthday it was, but you know, I was thinking, oh, I wonder what happens next. And that's such a great thing with a book. Is it entirely successful? No, it's not. It is flawed like most books are, but I loved it. I like the way that he
1: created a whole world using few clues, but at the same time, it was a complex world of laws and rules and social conventions, and did that by using two people in a small place and I could see Mm. this bleak landscape as well.
2: Yes, the weather, the treacherous sea, the desperate collection of seeds and and any scraps that could be used, the hard physical labour of digging up peat to burn because it's so freezing, uh, floods of water, sheeting rain. Occasional birds, there aren't many of those left. Uh, and, And the diet of Weeds and seaweed and strange teas that they were living on. Yeah, very clever. Tom Watson's Metronome is published by Bloomsbury. Mm. Actually, Kate, before we leave that book... It's kind of worth just mentioning the context of other books that it sits in. Uh, it made me think of a few books, and maybe it did to you too, but I was thinking of The Road. By that was C- the first was one it? I was thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> By Cormac McCarthy. Uh, also, The Children of Men by P.D. James. Uh, which was turned into that brilliant movie with Clive Owen in it. And also, one, a post nuclear story that many people might have read at school Zed for Zachariah by Robert C. O'Brien, about a young girl left in a valley somehow spared from a nuclear apocalypse. But all three of those books were in my mind. What about you?
1: Well, I couldn't help
2: but thinking of Lucy Treloar's Wolf Island, the Australian
1: writer, and that Mm. was a dystopian one. But interestingly, well, it's on an island, but the character in that was building sculptures. Ah. And so there was another resonance there with the the
2: sculptures in in this one. We've certainly read a lot of books about islands recently.
1: (laughs) We sure have.
2: Time now on the bookshelf to meet this week's guests. And yes, we've got a theme of music with our readers this week. A musician, singer-songwriter, Brian Astepper is with us. Six albums to his name. Brian, hello. Hi, Brian. Hello, guys. How are you all? Tell us
1: a bit about yourself, Brian. You grew up mostly in Western Sydney, but what else can you tell us about your family?
3: Well, I'm a, I'm a migrant from the Philippines, so we moved to Australia back in 1987. So we lived in Western Sydney, like you mentioned. And, um. There wasn't a lot of us uh, Filipinos or um, not a lot of Asians in my area. I grew up in predominantly a Greek and uh, Lebanese area. So that was my first impressions of Australia, actually. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been a Western Sydney person ever since.
1: Now, Brian, I read something that you wrote about your entry into a sort of musical community mm. after a teenage identity crisis where you were accused of being an emo filo. <laughs> now, what did that mean?
3: So basically, the Filipino culture, especially in the 90s, were really entrenched in the American culture, especially the hip hop and rap culture. And R&B was really big, especially in Australia around then. So I was kind of caught up in all that being Filipino myself, but in reality, my my musical background and upbringing was the Beatles, the Bee Gees, the Carpenters, and then during the '90s when I was a teenager, Grunge hit. So um, I was really smack in the middle of that musical scene as well, and it's around the time I started dabbling in bands. So yeah, it was kind of weird being in school and. Trying to um, fit in to my, you know, fellow Filipinos, but at the same time knowing that I, what I really wanted to do was just turn my guitar up really loud and play <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: rock and roll. Yeah, but I love both cultures, and i you know, it's still something I'm really proud of. But it was just a, an early onset of identity crisis, I guess.
1: And that term imofilo that meant like an imitation, imitation Filipino.
3: Filipino. So I wasn't quite. They might have worn the right garb, but in reality, they knew the, the facade I was living. <laughs> Yeah. And
1: so you found your people in the sort of indie music scene?
3: Yeah. It was it was really strange, especially when Brick Pop hit and Grunge hit. I found that a lot of my fellow, a lot of the quieter Asians, um, that was a, a form of expression for them as well. We all discovered the same indie rock bands around that time and a lot of them were British, whether it's Radiohead or Blur or Oasis. And we all found ourselves in the same clubs and it was just really interesting Seeing It was really good for me anyway, seeing all my you know, fellow Asian-Australians, young ones in these clubs, I just didn't expect it because we always had this stereotype of being bookworms and being led by tiger parents. But in reality, there was a lot of creativity amongst us, and we were out there, Mm -hmm. Rocking the suburbs. Rocking the suburbs indeed, yeah.
2: Are you doing that now? Because I understand that you're a primary school teacher. Do you still?
3: Yeah. Funny where life takes us. Well, you can't really. Stuart probably can attest that it's just hard to make a living as an Australian musician or as a musician in general these days. So uh, you, a lot of us, especially in my indie scene, we a lot of us have day jobs, a lot of us are professionals because as much as we love and fantasise to have music as a, a career, we know it's just not financially viable and we kind of need both to support each other. So yeah, I became a primary school teacher over the last six years and it's been uh, an interesting journey so far, to say the least.
2: You know what, I reckon rock stars, big time rock stars around the world probably dream of being primary school teachers.
3: Well there's a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, probably there's a few of us actually in the especially in the Sydney scene that are actually educators. So um, you know, I think we needed to start our own clubs somewhere.
1: And you do have six albums under your belt. And I think the latest one came out just last year, Brian.
3: Yeah, six albums and I had an EP called Back to the Middle that came out last year. And I've been lucky enough as well, I had two records come out under Stuart Coop's uh, record label, Laughing Outlaw Records. So, um, yeah, it's really nice to have the connection today. Well, speaking of
2: Stuart, hello to you as well. Hello to all of you. How are you doing? Great to have you along. Of course, Stuart Coop is a music promoter and a writer. He's a radio star on Sydney's FBI FM. He's written books of his own as well as reading thousands of them pretty much every week. Uh, he wrote The History of Roadies in Australia and also a recent biography of Paul Kelly. Now, we're talking about, I guess, the community that's created around music that Brian described. I know we've Talked about it before, Stuart. But how much of that is part of your life now, and how has it shaped you?
4: Uh, Look, it's it's always been you know a huge part of my life, Cassie. I mean, you know, I've been writing. It's scary, I think. Now, you know, I've been writing about music for more than 45 years, and I've been listening to it for a lot longer than that, you know, since I was about, you know, 10, 11 years, when I'm f- most conscious of listening to music for the first time. Uh, so it, it's it's a big uh, a big part of my world. Um, you know, I, I no longer... Have the record label that uh, that released a couple of Brian's records, but as well as my you know two radio shows, uh, I do you know a lot of um, of independent artist publicity.
2: Also, right now you're writing a memoir of your life. Are you gonna you know you gonna use a sort of musical format? Are you got a set list or something?
4: I'm not sure. It was a book um, that I was reluctant to write uh you know because i'm going it's not that interesting uh you know and it came about because i was i doubt
2: that i doubt that's
4: true we'll we'll see i i I, i'm at 116,000 words at the moment i'm going oh is anybody want to read this does anyone want to read this but i I went to a publisher at penguin random house with what i thought were a whole lot of really really great ideas and he said no 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 Don't think so. And then he said, Have you ever thought about writing about your own life? And I said, No. And he said, Well, (laughs) maybe you should. You know, and I was still sort of hesitant. And he said, Look, think think about Donald Fagan from Steely Dan's book, Eminent Hipsters, which is just, you know, a book I do love and he loves too. And it's just a free-ranging almost essay collection that hangs together as a sort of memoir. And, and it was funny because I, I did an outline for the book and I did all the big ticket stories, you know, getting drawn by Leonard Cohen, hanging out with Mick Jagger and Bruce Springsteen and all that sort of stuff. And he said, he said, that's, that's sort of interesting. But he said, do you know what I really like about what you wrote? I said, no. And he said, it's the growing up in Launceston, in Tasmania, as a music-obsessed teenager who wanted to write about music and tell people about music and have a life in music. He said, that's the real story work on that and then tell a couple of dinner party war stories further on.
1: Well, given that we have two guests with musical expertise, we're going to expect you both to pay attention, I guess, to the music and the rhythm, the harmonies, or maybe the discords in the books that you've read for us today. So, Brian, you've read Australian writer Tony Jordan's Dinner with the Schnabels, and Stuart, you've read Mexican writer Fernanda Melchor's Paradise, which is where we'll begin. (laughs)
2: Fernando Melchor is a Mexican journalist and also a novelist who takes on the violent world of the narcos in her work. That's the gangs, the underbelly of her country. This is often really risky territory for journalists in Mexico which is one of the reasons she's turned to
1: fiction to tell those stories. And you might remember, Cassie, her novel Hurricane Season, which we discussed here on the bookshelf a few years mm. ago, and it was based on a real murder. And she was going to write a journalistic expose of that story, but interviewing those involved was simply too dangerous. So what she does with fiction is take on these stories and I have to say it's not a step backwards. Oh really?
2: Okay, so there's lots of edginess as there is in other Mexican writing that's come up here on the program. We've talked about uh, Valeria Lucelli's novel, The Lost Children Archive and also late last year we read Silvia Moreno-Garcia's Velvet Was the Night which is about the Dirty War of the 1970s. Stuart, have you read much Mexican fiction? I
4: seem to have read more Mexican fiction than I would have expected just looking at my bookshelves. And and I started thinking about it when I read this new novel. So I, I am fascinated By both, you know, the the criminality in Mexico, uh, and also, you know, of course, the issues over the borders and Mexicans seeking to cross the border into North America. So, over the last couple of years, I've read a lot of fiction and non-fiction about both of those subjects, you know, things like Alfredo Corchedo's Midnight in Mexico, Luis Alberto Urea, The Devil's Highway. and uh, I really liked a, a collection of writing by Yuri Herrera called Signs Preceding the End of the World. There are books, as I said, that really deal with either the, you know, seemingly out-of-control criminality in Mexico or the tensions uh, and struggle and, and, you know, hideous outcomes of of people uh, trying to, uh, to cross the border.
2: My gosh, Stuart, you're such a wide reader. That's amazing. So let's talk about this new novel by Fernanda Melchor. Kate, I'll let you pronounce the title.
1: Yeah, this novel has been translated from the Spanish by Sophie Hughes. So obviously we're reading it in English. The point of the title is that it's set around a gated community in Mexico, which we might look at and call paradise. But there is a young man in the story who doesn't know how to pronounce these gringo words, and he thinks it's paradise. And so somebody then says to him, no, it's paradise. (laughs) <laughs> Instantly we understand that we're both in this peculiar community full of wealthy people in Mexico but we're in the perspective of a young man called Polo. He works as a gardener and a
2: sort of general dog's body. I see. So he doesn't he's not a resident of this gated community. He's a worker, you know.
1: He's a worker who lives nearby. He comes in every day to clean the pool to pick up the dog poo, to do whatever anybody asks of him. And this book is told in a very close third person from Polo's perspective. He's poor, he's angry, he's resentful. Now, Stuart, it seems to me that this young man feels every slight and every sting. Tell us more about him.
4: Yes, look you know he's not happy he's wanting very much to be like his his cousin Milton, who he really looks up to as a you know the sort of person that he would like to be his his living circumstances uh you know he's impoverished, his cousin is there she's pregnant he's been forced to move you know out of where he used to sleep to make way for her you know his his life is is not good, and he has this sort of degree of of resentment about these people that he has to, you know, in the community that he has to pick up after them and he has to, you know, accede to their every demand. And, you know, he, he, I guess for want of a better expression now he's dreaming of a better life, but he doesn't really have much of an understanding of what that better life May possibly be, except to maybe be like Milton, who you know we find out you know Milton is is a tough hombre who's hanging out with gangs and organised criminals. Polo very much looks up to him, and then of course he has this relationship with Franco, who is around his age, uh, who is you know he's a blonde kid, he's rich, he's overweight, and he's addicted to pornography and he lives in this gated community with his grandparents. I
1: mean, as you say, Polo doesn't know what he wants except that he wants to escape this life he's in. And the only way he knows how to do that is by getting drunk. But he can't even afford to buy alcohol. He has to hand over all his money to his mum. And so Franco Andrade, this boy in this gated community, he's often just called fat boy during the, the course of the novel so they get together they drink what what's their conversation like
4: yes they do drink together it seems pretty much every night they have location not far from the community where they go. And, and you know, quite a bit of the book is about how they manage to get enough money to buy various forms of alcohol and how they manage to buy it. They get very, very drunk. Franco carries on about pornography and in particular, because they're thrown together in a kind of strange relationship because they, they're clearly, you know, very, very Different individuals. And this is where Fernando Melcher is, is exploring these notions of, of inequality, you know, the haves and have nots who are thrown together in these circumstances. And Franco really is obsessed both with his pornography, but particularly his obsession with the mother. Uh, you know, she's the mother of of two kids, and with her husband, and they, the family lives in this community. Oh, I
2: see. So there's these two guys: the main yes. character, Polo, and his pal Franco or Fat Boy. This is the blonde who's into pornography. He's got. His eyes on one of the women who lives in, in this gated community.
1: Yes, Senora Mariana. So she's older, she's glamorous. It's not some sort of sweet desire that we're talking about here. It's full-on pornographic fantasies and it's violent, it's obsessive, it feels dangerous and a bit uncomfortable as a reader. And also, you know from very early on that something is happening because it's told from the perspective of Polo and as we're getting these frantic conversations, it's long sentences and this sort of torrent of images, then sometimes Polo will say, but I thought it was just all talk.
2: huh. that's what I was going to ask you. Is this in any way reciprocated by Signora Mariana?
1: Oh, they're just
2: teenagers around. She doesn't even she know is. that he exists.
1: She just thinks he's a teenager who lives nearby right. and sometimes wants okay. to come in the house and play so with all her, his her kids. Right. But, Stuart, we really have to talk about the style of this book because it's a short novel. It's immersive. It's hard to quote from because it'd be language warnings all over the
4: place. <laughs> the language in it is frequently brutal, and, and it's particularly brutal when we are dealing with Franco's Intentions uh, in terms of the woman in the community and what he intends to do to and with her. And uh, yes, and and, and she is completely unaware of this. And look, there were parts in it when I thought, God, this, you know, he's talking like the letters page from Penthouse. There is no sensuality. There is no warmth. There is a complete objectification on behalf of young Franco in terms of this woman. I found it um, at times very, very, uncomfortable because it's it's not soft, it's not easy, you know, the language is relentless and tough. You know, sometimes I thought, God, this is a little bit like, you know, Charles Bukowski meets, you know, Mexican penthouse, you know, and then there are moments of completely fluid, you know, really beautiful writing. Let's um, just
1: pause on that whole question of that language because yeah. it is a deliberately confronting read and she's making her choices about how she's writing about violence and the imagination as well as whatever it is that's going to happen now this was also a real feature of her last novel hurricane season and when that was published a couple of years ago claire nichols spoke to her for the book show and asked her about why she chose to use language in the way that she does with this deluge of words and violence and this is what she said
3: I thought that as the subject is so harsh and the language, it's so crude because I really wanted the, the language of the novel to reflect the reality of these people. I didn't want to construct this reality with beautiful words because I wanted really to construct the world with the, with the words that the characters themselves would use. So I decided to give it this unrelenting and vertiginous rhythm. So I really wanted the reader to keep on reading, even if uh, their their first impulse was to throw away the book. <laughs> so I wanted to create this this momentum that pulls the reader and makes them continually reading. Sometimes I even feel like the temptation of asking for forgiveness because I I know it can be a, a, a book that is difficult to read.
1: Fernanda Melchor speaking to Claire Nichols on the book show. She was speaking there about her novel Hurricane Season, but everything that she said there also applies to this novel, Paradise.
2: Now, earlier on, there was a mention of another character called Milton. Who's he, Kate? So he is Polo's cousin
1: and one of the interesting things about this character, because at first we don't quite know who he is or where he fits into the story, is that all throughout Polo references them and they and them is the gang's the narcos, those forces in Mexican culture that have both undermined it and are much bigger than anything we could imagine in terms of organised crime. He mentions the little kids around the place who are the Falcons who work for these gangs. And his cousin Milton, we discover, got pulled in by one of these gangs. And the story of what happened to his cousin is brutal. But Polo, he still sees an escape because he doesn't know how to get out of this grim life that he's in.
4: And and that was some of the toughest reading in this novel, Okay, I agree with you completely. I mean, when uh, Milton is kidnapped and taken away to a remote area by uh, this gang, you know, I've read a lot of crime fiction in my life, and this was right up there in terms of, you know, you are right there, and this is horrible. You know, I I was feeling it. In a physical as well as a mental sense, you know what he was being subjected to to make him complicit in what this gang wanted him to do. But yes, and then we we have Polo who just you know probably to an you know unaware of just what this life is really like. Polo, you know, is is naive in that respect. He just looks up to his image of Milton. You know, Milton is tough. Milton's got attitude. Milton does things. Milton is what he sort of aspires to be like.
1: Yes, well, Milton has money. And Polo doesn't. I mean, Polo is living on the very lowest rungs of society. So as we sort of bring this discussion together, I guess for me, this was a breathless, powerful read, but it's not easy to read. As a reading experience, Stuart, how would you rate it?
4: I found it really I couldn't stop reading it. I read it in two sessions, uh, and if I hadn't been interrupted, it would have been one because I was propelled partly by the language, partly by really well-drawn characters, and that sense every time you turned a page, there was not going to be a happy ending. I think it's it's a remarkable novel that really does linger with you. And yes, it takes, you know, maybe five, 10, 15 pages to get into it. And if anyone does start reading it and goes, you know, oh I'm not sure I want to keep going. You know, once it grabs you, it really just takes you in.
1: It's confronting. It's awful. It's intelligent. It's hard to look away. I think it's well worth it Fernanda Melchor's Paradise, translated by Sophie Hughes, is published by text and it has also been longlisted for the 2022 International Booker Prize.
2: You're listening to The Bookshelf on ABC Radio National and via the ABC Listen app. I'm Cassie McCullough here with Kate Evans and our guests today are music writer Stuart Coop and singer-songwriter Brian Stepper. Now, Kate, after hearing about a Mexican novel filled with violence and, and rage... <laughs> I'm hoping there might be a a change in tone ahead. Look, I have an
1: antidote. This one has no blood, no criminal gangs. It's even funny. And it's by Australian writer, Tony Jordan.
2: That's a familiar name. What else has she written?
1: Our Tiny Useless Hearts and Nine Days, The Fragments and a few others. But her latest, Cassie, is called dinner with the schnabels there's a clue in the title it's a family story it's set in melbourne it's contemporary people are careful about social distancing so there's a sort of bit of a covid context but life's getting back to normal and brian Estepa, you and i have both read this one we meet a man named simon he's married into a close-knit family the schnabels of the title which may or may not be a blessing but tell us more about simon what's going on with him
3: Well, like you mentioned, it's set straight after the, from what I can gather, the first pandemic lockdown in Melbourne. We meet Simon, who from the very beginning of the book, there's a really unflattering description of this man. He's already defeated. He's going through the motions of life. Uh, He was an architect. He lost his business due to the pandemic. And he's trying to navigate life again as this unemployed man in his 40s, when I guess at this age... He's a family man as well he's got kids he's got a wife. um how do you navigate this new life turn that's been brought upon you by this seemingly unknown pandemic that came out of nowhere and hit everyone's lives?
1: and the family Simon's a part of, so his wife Tansy is part of this family, the Schnabels. What's mm. so special about them?
3: Well, start with Tansy I think Tansy is the wife of Simon and she's this kind, level-headed um, person, I feel like she keeps everything all steady, like all good um, motherly figures in the family, in the household. Um, the, she's got a sister named Kylie, who is very uh, down the line, very pedantic from what I can gather. A brother named Nick, who, from what we can gather, was the golden child. Happens also to be a primary school teacher, just like me, but he was, uh, in another life, an AFL player. Uh, but I think the crowning glory of the characters here is Gloria, the mother-in-law of Simon. Uh, she the sounds terrifying. She is, actually. She's the classic, uh, I don't know, I just pictured this classic family matriarch. She's opinionated. She's now uh, not afraid to speak her mind, and I just get this feeling that there's there's this fear still she brings upon her kids uh, and even to Simon, sort of a mixture of infuriation and um and fear as well of wanting to please this mother-in-law.
2: So it sounds like a classic Australian comedy of manners and class.
3: Yeah, you kind of you kind of introduced to this family. Um, you kind of see all the family dynamics pretty much straight away. and how they're all kind of navigated and how they react to Gloria.
1: It is a family drama, but it's more like a sort of sitcom meets rom-com. And <laughs> Simon's giving us a whole lot of lines about this family that he's part of. So his wife and her siblings, they're a very tight unit He saw them as a three-person French resistance or a rock band, Rage Against the Gloria, the Surrey (laughs) Hills Underground. (laughs) He loved Tansy's relationship with Kylie and Nick, theoretically, and he also understood those relationships in a more personal way. And part of the way that he tracks it is depending on which members of her family are coming over, it's a beer night or a wine night, or when Gloria's there, it's like a three-straight whiskey (laughs) kind of night.
2: (laughs) It's a very familiar situation for certain families in this country, no names. But something else happens, Brian. That sort of throws a um, chaos
1: into the mix. Who else turns up?
3: Well, the, we find out that the father of Tansy, Carly, and Nick passes away, and there's going to be a um, a memorial for him uh, happening in Melbourne. And out of nowhere, a the long lost half sister named Monica appears. Uh, so she's the daughter of. Um, their father's second marriage. Uh, so Monica is not really known to Gloria or she does. she's never met her step-siblings and she kind of just comes out of nowhere like a hurricane. And um, when we first meet her, she's this flaky sort of character. She's a millennial from what I can see and already you can see Tansy wanting to accept her despite not knowing anything about her really and, and Simon's kind of stepping back and really apprehensive about having this new figure in their family coming through.
2: Hang on. Yeah. So Monica is younger than the yes. three siblings who are That's the right. the Surrey Hills rock band. And Gloria is the first wife and there's a second wife. That's right. The
1: husband, the father of these, he left 30 years before. Uh-huh. And Gloria is still furious. She hasn't Mm. seen him for three decades, but she has never let her rage go down. (laughs) And there's worse to come. She's decided that she wants to throw the memorial service in Melbourne to celebrate the life of her late ex-husband, basically because she wants to stand up and tell everybody, and I mean everybody, what she thinks of him. Mm. And so this sets up the sort of structure and action for the book, which is that in less than a week's time from the beginning of the book to the end, Mm -hmm. there's going to be this memorial service. And it's going to take place in the backyard of Tansy's friend, Naveen Patel. The reason this is important is that Simon, the out-of-work architect, is going to be employed as a gardener <laughs> to fix it up. But basically, Brian, everything goes wrong, doesn't it?
3: Well, it does. It's. I actually love the introduction of um, Naveen's garden because I felt like it's almost a barometer or even a, a metaphor to how the family dynamics will pan out or how this whole thing will end up because there was so much pressure on Simon to, to have this finished and it was the one thing he had to do. But within all that, all these drama started happening, finding out Monica is arriving, you know, finding out she's a really popular fashion influencer and um, him getting a job offer from a former employee of his who's at least 15, 20 years younger. Within all this, I think the focus starts to become on Simon um, and you start to see the pressures of being a dad, the traditional stereotype of being the breadwinner. And also amongst that, there was, I don't know how much I can reveal in the plot, but there's an interesting twist towards the end where there's... Is there going to be adultery? <laughs> and all this was leading towards, is this garden going to be finished? Because ultimately, that's where the whole action will sort of conclude. It's, all
2: of the action concluding the garden, including it, the adultery that may or may not occur. Well, it sort of all does. I mean, it is
1: structured to as sort of relatable chaos. You know, the fridge breaks down, he has to wait for a tradie. He's getting papers delivered, they come to the wrong place. And so it's like, Everyday disasters, but writ large.
2: The shock of the present. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, at first I thought a bit sitcom but then I woke up in the middle of the night trying to cast it as a sort of quirky Australian oh, that, I was film. going to ask
2: you, have, have the rights been optioned? I mean, it, does, it just has Australian quirky romance film written all Absolutely. over it.
3: That was my first impression as soon as... I started reading the book that I thought I was watching an Aussie television drama because it'll open with Monday as a you know a prelude to the chapter starting and then it's Tuesday, Wednesday. And I felt all these new episodes coming up. And then once the characters got introduced, you're kind of you're either, you know, you're barracking for one character, you're getting really annoyed. And it was, yeah, I feel like there is a movie or a television show waiting in the making for this particular book.
1: And various side characters would yes. sort of win the day, I reckon. And you'd mm-hmm. have some terrific character actors playing those parts. I'm seeing Maine Wyatt, whoever the equivalent of the young Shane Jacobson is, plays Simon. There's the Chi family up the road who would provide a bit of a welcome relief from the sort of very white bread center of mm. it.
2: So I'm, I'm seeing Tony Collette.
1: As Gloria. I think Tony Colette would absolutely rock it as Gloria. So what did you make of this one, Brian? Did I, you enjoy
3: it? To be honest, from I found that I wasn't as invested into the book up until maybe a quarter of the way through it when I really I really locked into Simon's character. I like I mentioned before, I, I've started to really relate to his the family security, the career, the the pressures of being that breadwinner. I just felt like that's what drew me in because I felt like the other characters were very familiar to me. It's, it's a book that it's about family dynamics and how we all relate to each other. And, and I I loved that potential twist at the end. I felt like that's what sort of got me riveted more in the book and wanted me to see how it was all going to end. You know, was Simon going to implode? Was it all going to get finished? How was Gloria going to react to finally meeting Monica? I just found you know some of the lines that Gloria was saying towards the end, especially during the, the her eulogy, was hilarious.
1: They were very funny.
3: There was one quote. I don't know if, if I don't mind quoting something. It just really cracked me up. She said, um, "So this is while she was talking about her ex-husband." Men are also, Gloria continued, I'm sure you will all agree with me on this, the more emotional sex. You only have to attend one football match to see that. The only way they have somehow managed to label women as more emotional is because they have somehow managed to not consider anger to be an emotion. And she also <laughs> says things like, but we collectively have striven to forgive them. Historically, we have cared for these poor, flawed characters. They die sooner. They have poorer immune systems. They have a lower pain threshold. And this is what got me. Their genitals hang outside their body. So... <laughs> I just, you know, I pictured this car crash of a um, <laughs> memorial, but in it, Gloria was just unflattering, unwavering honesty.
1: And the siblings turn around to each other and sort of mouthing to each other, what is going like, what on? What is going on? <laughs> and you could sort of feel that. Look, like you, Brian, when it first started, I wasn't entirely convinced and you know Tansy is described as having tawny hair and a sprinkling of freckles, and those sorts of descriptions I find so cliched that they make mm. my teeth grind together. But then I was drawn in, and I'm surprised at how much I cared about whether the landscaping of an imaginary garden in uh, Melbourne was going to happen.
3: Yeah, I feel exactly the same. I think once we were invested in the characters and and I loved the way Tony would describe the most mundane, scenes, you know, like she talked about the atmosphere in Coles. She said Coles had the atmosphere of a mausoleum, <laughs> you know, the background music, the announcement of license plates in the losing zone, you know, I think a lot of great writers have uh, this ability to just be great people observers and really be aware of what's happening around them. And I think that, that was one of the, the things I liked in her writing in this book, you know, she made the mundane seem so vivid. <laughs> Those are some of the things that's kind of got me.
1: Yeah, she captured the, the food court quite well as well. (laughs) Yes, she did. (laughs) And perhaps I needed a bit of froth and meringue and Aussie quirkiness after I survived the toughness of Fernanda Melchior's Paradise as well. Tony Jordan's Dinner with the Schnabels is published by Hachette.
2: Well, two great reviews there. Thank you to both you, Brian, and to you, Stuart. Very different books. Let's briefly add a couple to the ever-growing pile of to-be-read books on the bookshelf. Stuart Coop, first to you, what would you like to add to this pile?
4: I'm very much looking forward to it, and it's next on my reading list, a book called No One Around Here Reads Tolstoy. Memories of a Working Class Reader by Mark Hodkinson. So it's a it's a book about growing up working class and loving books, but not having books around and then becoming a reader. And as it says, he now lives with three and a half thousand books. I can relate to that. So I, I'm looking forward to this. <laughs>
2: yeah, it does sound like it's up your alley. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. What about you, Brian Estepa? What have you been reading that you'd like to recommend?
3: Well, I've recently read a book called Stoner by uh, the American writer, John Edward Williams. It's a book from the 1960s. Uh, Again, it's a a great book that makes the mundane and ordinary life seem so romantic and fulfilling. So I love that. And a book called How to Write One Song as well by one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Uh, I'm a songwriter, so I can never stop learning.
2: Yeah, uh, I had an amazing interview with him a little while ago and I, I also fell in love with him. Fantastic, besides the music, of course. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us on the bookshelf this week.
3: Thank you both very much. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Stuart Coop is a music promoter and writer. His books include Roadies and the biography of singer-songwriter Paul Kelly. As we heard, he's working on a coming-of-age in music in Launceston memoir, as well as a book about organised
2: crime and the entertainment industry in Australia. And Brian Stepper, singer-songwriter and schoolteacher by day, has released six albums, including Back to the Middle and Sometimes I Just Don't Know. Great title. Great title. <laughs> Well, it looks like we've reached the end of another bookshelf with three books reviewed and plenty more referenced. And, yes, we list them all online. Just look for The Bookshelf on ABC Radio National's website. And
1: we'll be back next week with a New Zealand-themed book club edition of the show. We're reading Kerry Hume's The Bone People, first published in 1984, and Lloyd-Jones' The Fish, which
2: just came out a few months ago. So read along with us. Tell us what you think. Don't just shout at the radio or your podcast device. Send us an email or maybe contribute via the ABC Book Club Facebook group. Whatever you do, join us again same time next week. I'm Cassie McCullough. And I'm Kate Evans. Keep on reading.